to the podcast where we bring on remarkable people to tell their stories. I'm Paul Gilman. I'm Daniel Lance. And this is Podso One. Brenda Gilman, also known as Paul's mother, is a lifelong educator, first of kindergartners and then of college students. Though what's the difference, really? No stranger to hard work, she earned both her master's and PhD in education through night classes while raising her two kids. Brenda is also a natural creative and has consistently practiced expression across a variety of visual arts her whole life. This episode, she tells us about all the above, as well as her love for her native Ashland, Virginia. Also joining us is Paul's daughter and Brenda's granddaughter, Lindsay Gilman. So here are Brenda and Lindsay. Okay, so Mima is technically your name? No, my name is Brenda Gilman. Brenda Gilman. <laughs> Welcome, uh, mother to Paul and grandmother to Lindsay. Uh, Correct. Welcome to Pod So One. Thank you so much. Uh, I, we should mention that Lindsay is with us. Uh, we would not leave out the other two grandkids that are also my kids uh, if it weren't for the fact that they're not in the room right now. Lindsay's on the mic. She has one to three questions that she'll ask <laughs> throughout. Uh, but we're excited to have my mom on here. Because I'm a homer, we've had uh, my dad on here and some, some of my friends. I guess that's how we start. But uh, the main reason we're having my mom on is because I want to tell as much of your story as we can fit into roughly 90 minutes um, into a recording. And having that recording for posterity for your grandkids to listen to 15 years from now I think would be pretty cool. Or maybe your great-grandkids someday. That would be wonderful. Yeah. So, Mima. Are you married? Yes. Can we call you Mima or Brenda or Mom? What are we doing here? Um, you can call me whatever you want, but I'm going to call you Mom. Okay, you call me Mom. You call me Mima. Okay. The you, the Daniel. Yeah. You call me Brenda. Brenda. Or or we could go with uh, Mrs. Gilman or Doctor Gilman, but we're not going to Doctor. We're not going to play with Doctor. Okay. Well, we might mention it later, but yeah. So, uh, are you married? You are married. Yes, I'm married. So, so you are Mrs. I am Mrs. Did you yeah. take your husband's last name? Yes, I did. <laughs> How long have you been married? Uh, I believe we have been married 53 years. You, in don't, June. you don't look a day that over is 48. That's a long time. It is a long time, Daniel. <laughs> so 53 years? 53 years. And I'm 54. <gasps> no, I'm not 54. <laughs> How old are you? I, I, you probably, you may not know that answer, but I'm 51. I'm your oldest son. I'm your only son. I'm one of two of your children. I just wanted to clear that up. The, the other one being Elizabeth Gilman, who mm-hmm. we, we indirectly met through my brother-in-law. Correct. Your son-in-law. Good times. All right. So who's your favorite child? <laughs> <laughs> For the audience that can't see uh, my mom's face, she's uh, non-verbally Don't dis- you think that's the kind of question that we should build to? I know the answer. No, no, I wanted to get it out of the way. Okay. <laughs> Lindsay thinks she knows the answer, but we will not share that. All right, Mom, you have been a lifelong uh, consumer of education and giver of education. Do you want to start about start with the uh, giving or the receiving of education? Maybe the receiving. Yeah, that started first. All right, so yeah. you graduated uh, high school in the mid-60s? Yeah, but what I'm, I was thinking about, this would be a possible question, that I really think the things that influence your education start so early, and mine started probably preschool. Mm. I grew up in the country. We had kind of a little farmette, and animals were really important. 
to me, and the outdoors were really important. And you you begin to shape the things that you that you like and that you're interested in, and the things that you want to pursue. That early, it's true. Mm. Pre-K, so like three, four years old. Mm-hmm. And so, what was around you when you were three or four years old? Well, I had wonderful neighbors. We lived in a rural setting. Um, you can name the rural setting <coughs> between, excuse me, between Hanover Courthouse and Ashland. Where we are now, roughly. Yeah, a little, little closer to Ashland. Right. Um, but I didn't have real close neighbors, and I didn't have any neighbors that had children my age. So I did a lot of things on, on my own. I had to entertain myself a lot. I had an older sister. Uh, she was five years older, and I didn't see her much because she was doing different things than, than you, what I was doing. You were doing. never in the same school with her? No. Yeah. Was. Five years is just a little bit too big of a gap, you know, to, yeah, to be hanging out with a lot. For sharing experiences, other than like blackberry picking or something. Right. You know, we could do together, but. Was that what you did when you spent time with your sister? You picked blackberries? We did. I can remember. And every time I see blackberries, and I love blackberries, my mother would say to us, if you all want to go pick some blackberries, I'll make a blackberry roll with lemon sauce. So we would go pick blackberries. Both your mom and you uh, made a lot of those. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We did. I've had a few of those. Mm-hmm. Might explain why I weigh 280 pounds. Okay. 280, dude. I didn't know that you got under 300. <laughs> Congratulations. We- I, I, I never made it over 300, even though I, I did scare that, maybe. Aren't we proud of him? Yeah, but we're not, here, we're, we're not yeah. here to talk about me. Oh, okay, okay. So uh, link something you learned as a pre-K to something that uh, you value today or something you think about quite a bit today. Nature. I think a lot about nature. I spent a lot of time outdoors when the weather was good enough, and that means when it wasn't snowing, when it wasn't freezing, and when it wasn't raining hard. I Mm. preferred to be outside. Um, And that has really uh, followed in my teaching. I didn't have as much flexibility in public school teaching, but when I went to college teaching, I often took my students outside, Mm. and we, we conducted class outside. And I bet they love being outside. Some of that was productive being outside, and some of that was maybe not so productive because there were th- well, more things to distract you. Well, I didn't do it every day. It right, was a right, special, right. you know, uh, time to do that. Just was a beautiful day, and it, it was good to be outside and have fresh air. So you went to school kindergarten through twelfth grade. I didn't go to kindergarten. There was no kindergarten back no then. No kindergarten. I started in first grade at six years old, and. Um, my husband, the love of my life, was in my class, and that's the first time I ever met him. And I said to my mother when I got home from school, there's the cutest little boy in my class. And she's, this is day one of first grade? Yeah. And so she says, tell me about him. And so I was telling her, you know, about him. And she was a room mother, so she didn't see him until October when we had a Halloween party. And then she said to me that day, well, he is really cute. But then years, years, years later, my mother was in her early 90s. She said to me, I had no idea that little boy that you told me about in your first grade class and I met would end up being my son-in-law and be so kind to me. He was very kind to her. Yeah. He was wonderful to her. So I think that's a great story. I love to think that. That's incredible. That's an awesome story. Um, th- did anything about his name throw her off, like the fact that he's Larry, not Lawrence? No, she never even asked about that. <laughs> 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 I 
Yeah, that's funny. So there was no kindergarten. I didn't know that. No, we didn't have kindergarten. So when did kindergarten start? Kindergarten did not come in until it was mandated by the state. And let me see, that was probably in the early 70s. So early 70s. The kindergartens maybe existed prior to that, but it wasn't widely... Uh, oh, there were kindergartens, right. but mainly they were private kindergartens. And if they were public kindergartens, they were usually half day, you know, morning, just mm. a morning session, or sometimes a morning session and an afternoon session. Yeah, because w- when I was in school, uh, we had kindergarten, but you, you had a nap. You had like an hour, hour and a half long nap because kids needed to take a nap, or no, at least sure. that was the, th- the thinking. Well, it was, a, it was a pretty packed day for a child who'd never been to school. Right. But, you know, most public schools didn't pick that up because it's an expensive program. To, it's expensive to start new programs mm. in school. And we had AIDS because children have, you know, various needs that can't be taken care of by themselves. So that if they had to leave the room, somebody had to go with them. Right. So it was, it, you know, it was a program that you brought in and you had to have all the accoutrements that went with making it a quality kindergarten program. Um, so, you know, public schools didn't pick it up until it was mandated. Well, it's kind of funny for me because one of my first memories of you as a teacher, actually my, my very first memories of your time teaching was you as a kindergarten teacher. Well, yeah. I had taught sixth and seventh before that time. Yeah, I don't remember And first times. and third. Um, I don't think you were born when I, bought, when I taught sixth and seventh. Yeah, that's not, and you were right. tiny when I taught first and third. Tiny meaning pre-K or maybe pre-K. Maybe, yeah, pre-K. Good times. Did you know you wanted to be a teacher from early on? Yeah, I kind of did know that. I I really I, I didn't play school all the time, um, but you know when I was making decisions about what I wanted to do, um, there were really three things you could do as a woman and have a career. You could be a secretary, administrative assistant. You could be a teacher or you could be a nurse. And I never wanted to be any of those others, either of those others. Mm. And it was really that limiting for you? It was pretty limiting, yeah. So you graduated high school in 63, uh, college in 67. Your options as a graduate of, at either level were those three things? Pretty much. But I will, I mean, you know, I, I could have been a veterinarian. It wasn't common, and I'm glad I didn't, and I thought about doing that, but I'm glad I didn't do that. Um, some people went to law school, but very some women, very few. Yeah. Well, so there were other opportunities, the, but they were more exceptions than the norm. Yeah. Yeah. And you did want to have a career. Like, you weren't looking to just be a stay-at-home mom and have babies. No, that, that appealed to me, too, because I wanted to have a family. Mm-hmm. Um, but as it turned out, when Paul was born in Germany, of course his father was in the army, and mm-hmm. we were in Germany for a year after we had Paul, and then he was um, he had orders for Vietnam. Not me as a one year old da- dad when he was a twenty three year old. Uh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> and, I, I, I break that up because I've joked about me being in Vietnam as a baby. And no, you were not in Vietnam. Yeah. So we came home, and Larry left to go to um, Vietnam, and. Paul and I were at home, and the Hanover County School System called me up and said, we have a teacher shortage. We know you have teaching credentials because I had a state teacher scholarship. And, of course, I was a product of Hanover County Schools. So they called and said, we need you. This was on a Friday, I think. We need you Monday morning 
to be in a classroom at Henry Clay School, which was just down the street from where we lived and where I had gone to elementary school. Wow. And, of course, Larry had gone to elementary school there, too. So I said, wow, I'm, I'm not really an elementary ed teacher. And they said, well, that's okay. You can do it. So I did that, and I loved it. And I had to, to become um, endorsed in elementary ed. I went back to school and took all of those courses that elementary teachers have to take. And then um, I, oh, and then because kindergarten was mandated, they didn't have enough kindergarten teachers. So I, they went from zero to a lot. But but right. but I that we saw it coming. Wow. So I had gone back to school and gotten my credentials, my endorsement for kindergarten because it was an it's an entirely different endorsement than what it was then. Mm. Um, cool. So I was when I was teaching my certificate read that I was endorsed to teach K through twelve. Well, you don't do that now. You can't do that. Really, you, know, you have more specific endorsements. You know, mm-hmm. you're early childhood, you're um, upper elementary, middle school, high school. Mm. Yeah, the the differences between all those K to twelve has got to be, you know, asking any one person to be able to teach that entire age range is is a pretty tall order. Well, you really have to be a people person, and teachers have to be teach people, persons, I think. But, of course, they have to know their subject matter. But when I moved to the college level, I was coming from kindergarten. and mm. But I wasn't going into teaching at the college level. I was going into uh, counseling and career planning and because I had a master's degree in counseling, and um, that included career planning. So, anyway, that, that somewhat qualified me to take that college job. So I got hired for that. But um, I think what's interesting is that then when I did start teaching and I taught elementary ed, um, well, I taught all the people who wanted to be teachers, but I concentrated up, ran the elementary ed program for teacher preparation. Mm. But what was so interesting, when I was teaching kindergarten, I always had cute little stories to tell my bridge club. Then when I moved to the college and I was doing counseling and career planning, well, you deal with some heavy issues in counseling. And they said, you never tell us any cute stories anymore. Because none of them are cute. I said, well, they're not very pretty, and I can't tell you anyway. Mm. But I said, what I've learned from going from kindergarten to college is that it's the basic needs that need to be met. A college freshman is just like a kindergartner. They don't know where they're going. They have to learn the culture. They have to learn all the routines, and they're very different from high school. Um, I said, but they need to know that somebody cares about them. They need to know that they're accepted and that they're valued, just like all people do. So the basic needs are the same. It doesn't matter the age. Mm. That's a pretty nice, nice, simple way to look at things, just kind of through the lens of of uh, everyone as a kindergartner, kind of. Well, then, you know, uh, after that time, um, everything, I, everything I learned about life I learned in kindergarten. There was a poster, a, a poster oh. that people w- would way have be- in classrooms. Yeah, way, way before Daniel's time, right? Yeah. Everything I learned, I learned in kindergarten. It was a book. Probably came out in the 80s. Oh, uh, okay. Probably, yeah, yeah, yeah. before Daniel was born. <laughs> yeah, just a little bit. <laughs> Certainly before Lindsay was born. Lindsay, you were born in the 2000s, right? Yeah. 
That's so crazy and to when, me. And when I say Lindsay, it's my verbal way of trying to get her to come into the conversation. What's up, Bloom? Not much. All right. You're thinking of a question about education. So, Meemaw, uh, you went to school, K, or sorry, first through 12th grade, and the system was segregated at the time. Yes. Right? But mm-hmm. most of your teaching career was in the integrated environment. Can you talk to us about education as a student all the way through the time that you um, left the local school system and moved to the college level? Yes. When we came back from um, Germany, and, and Hanover asked me if I would take that job, which I did because I didn't have anything to do, and I didn't want to watch the news all the time with Paul, Paul crying. Yeah. yeah, with Paul crying, with Paul's father being in the, oh, in the war. Yeah. Um, so my mother kept Paul, and I taught, and we were segregated then in school. Oh, okay, we were segregated, um, and I taught in a very rural school in Hanover, and I just loved it. I loved those children. They were just kind of salt of the earth. They didn't have much, but whatever they had was so important, you know, yeah, to them, yeah. and, and it was enough. Right. Um, then let's see. Paul came. Paul was Paul. Larry was away for a year in Vietnam. So he came back before Paul's second birthday, and he started working at um, Dominion Power. It was Bepco then. Mm. And I continued to teach because I couldn't stop in the middle of the year. You sign a contract, you stick with that contract. Okay. And then um, he started thinking about going to law school. So I thought, well, I'm, I'm going to need to keep teaching. Well, then we were expecting Buffy, who was born that following November. A.K.A. Elizabeth, right? Elizabeth, yes. Um, So I just continued to teach. So we would have, you know, the necessities, bread and milk and stuff, because we were also paying tuition. He could use his GI Bill. That helped. How how did you cover health care needs? I was employed. So so it went through you, yeah. Mm -hmm. Wow, so you were the... I was a breadwinner, yeah. Yeah. And your mom came in really clutch to help with the kids. She did. And sometimes, I will say, we did not have enough money to go to the grocery store until I got paid. And I only got paid once a month. Oh, wow. So um, I borrowed money from my mother to go to the grocery store until we got paid. Until we got paid. Yeah, and Mamma didn't have a ton of money to, to give no. you. Yeah. But whatever she had, you know, so did they, she was generous. Were they telling Larry, like, what are you doing? Start providing for your wife? Or did no. they understand about the law school? No, they understood that he, um, you know, he needed to pursue something else. He actually was going to get an MBA right out of graduating from tech, and then he decided he wanted a break because he did ROTC at tech, so he was going to be commissioned as an officer in the Army, but he um, was going to defer that and get an MBA before he did. And, and he changed his mind along mm-hmm. the way. I think probably working at Virginia Power, he realized he probably didn't want an MBA. Maybe he wanted to do something something else. And right. Yeah. And it was kind of funny. He admitted on the uh, the episode with us that uh, he really didn't like the whole, uh, was it law school or the law or being a lawyer? Something in there. He's like, yeah. It's okay. Yeah. He wasn't super excited about it. 
Did he, did he want to, I know where this is the Brenda show, but did he want to be a judge? Like, was it out of a, a goodness of his heart to help people that he wanted to go to law school, do you think? That's probably part of it. Probably so. I think he, it was probably for the lack of something else to do. I know he didn't want to work at Virginia Power for the rest of his life. Right. And people did that in our, in our generation. You know, you might be at the same, you might retire from the company that you started working for. Right. And not that he didn't like that. I think he thought he'd probably get bored. Mm-hmm. Um, but. So, nice. Um, when you were teaching and you had young kids at home, were most of your peers, other married women with children, were they at home or were they working? Uh, it just depended. It was, you know, it was kind of an individual thing. But probably 50-50 kind of thing? Probably, yeah. yeah. I, never, I, I didn't have time to count. I was teaching and taking care of children. Well, it's, it's funny. I, I was uh, <clears throat> I, I joke all the time that I won the parent lottery because you and Dad are the two hardest working people I've ever known. You're, you're super busy and, and not doing things that are uh, selfish. I mean, it, that you have time for yourself, of course. But like, I, I distinctly remember being in seventh, eighth grade, all the way through high school. My mom's a full time teacher. She's going to class at night, and she's making me breakfast and dinner every single day that I went to school. Every single day. I don't remember a time where you didn't do that. And you had a million excuses you could have made not to do that, but you did it every morning. If I've never thanked you, thank I'm you I'm so that. glad you appreciated <laughs> that. It's the reason I'm such a uh, this big, is the big strong young man. Yeah. This is why Paul's been looking forward to this episode, so he can really thank his mother. <laughs> I, I think well, I thanked you before. but Well, that, that was really a, a rich time of my life to have breakfast with you all. Yeah. I mean, you were, and, and you, were, you were super consistent about it, for sure. So I, I referenced going to school at night. Let's back up a little bit. So you graduate high school. You and Dad dated, I guess, at some point in high school. We had talked about how uh, you asked Dad. Dad clarified that it was the Sadie Hawkins dance. So it was sort of this one day out of the year where it was okay and normal for... But remember, I thought he was really cute from... No, I understand. I, I, knew, I, I knew there was more there than Dad was letting on, but it's all good. We'll go with the Sadie Hawkins dance was the reason. Um, so you graduate, and after high school, you have a choice of going into the workforce or going on to college. And I, I don't know this full story. You ended up with a scholarship to go to Longwood. Well, it was a um, state teacher scholarship. Longwood was a state teacher institution, as was Madison, was uh, Radford. All, all female at the time, right? All three of those schools. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so you say state teacher scholarship. What was your major in? I majored in home economics. Which, back in the mid to late 60s, didn't seem that out of the norm. But today, it seems... Well, they don't even like have something. it now. I mean, it's called family life, and it's mm. very different. Yeah. From, but, um, so what did you learn in your home economics courses? What did I learn? Yeah. I learned a lot about nutrition, how important it was for you to have a good start in the day. Um, I had a lot of eggs as a kid, I remember. Okay, yeah. that was good. And I don't even like eggs, so that was a real <laughs> sacrifice for me. <laughs> to, me neither. To do those. Hey. Um, what did I learn? Oh, I don't know. I, I could do a lot with um, my hands, and I enjoyed that. And I think what really turned me on to home economics when I got to college, because I had no idea what I was going to major in, was my senior year in high school, I had taken an elective course in home economics. I had never had a home economics course, and I loved it. Mm. I just loved all the things that we did, the meal preparation, the family budgeting, the, mm. and the nutrition part. was. And I 
really thought about it at one point, getting a master's in nutrition, but Larry didn't get an MBA, and so I wasn't going to go to school either because we were going to Germany. But, but you're um, a doctor, but we'll get to that later, I guess. To be clear, not a medical doctor. Well, I almost was because, <laughs> and, and because um, last week I walked into Walmart and one of the people, one of the people at Walmart said to me, "Are you a bird doctor?" And I said, uh, "No, why? Is that a problem?" And there was a little sparrow in the carts that oh, they had no. just cleaned, and he said, "We don't know what to do with this bird." And they started pushing the carts, and I said. Was he, was, I'm sorry, was the assumption that only a bird doctor could help in this yeah. situation? I mean, they were being funny. Right? <laughs> You're a bird doctor. Yeah, got it. So anyway, I ended up pushing the cart out with the little bird on it outside, and he wouldn't hop off the cart. So I had to get him off the cart, and then he just hopped. Oh, and there's traffic coming. So mm. I, I got him across the street, and he was still just hopping. And I thought, oh, no, he was safe inside Walmart, and he's in the big open world. And so I just kept getting closer and closer to him. And he finally just took off and flew. So I went back in and they said, yay, bird doctor. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. Okay. Yeah. When you talk about loving animals, um, I don't know whether to go with animals or go with uh, your master's degree, but uh, let's go with animals for a second. We grew up with you coming home on average every two and a half months with a stray animal. Cat, a lot. cat mm-hmm. or dog. Mm-hmm. And when I was in the house for those 18 years, you probably brought in double-digit number of stray animals. Is that fair? Yeah. And, and we ended up keeping... We didn't keep very many of a them. A small fraction, and then most of them you found homes for them. Yeah. I just, I just kind of rescued them and... Were you discovering these animals on your own, or were people like, oh, yeah, Brenda will uh, figure out what to do with these? Well, actually, my mother was part of that because we had a. I started a walking group early in the morning, the crack of dawn, and we met at the municipal building in Ashland. We everybody converged there, and then we we'd walk. We had a different ride around Ashland every every day, a Monday ride through Friday ride. And sometimes dogs would follow us. Well, if they had a collar on, we knew, you know, what to do. We didn't have cell phones then, but we knew that they were going to be um, sought after. Yep. And sometimes they would just follow us. I'm not, I'm not talking about droves of dogs, but you mm-hmm. know, a dog would come home with us. And so they, they needed to be fed. They needed to be bathed. And we took care of them, and then we tried to find them homes. Where would you keep them? In a house. Oh, yeah. We, we already had dogs and yeah. a cat. Yeah, we never had more than one cat, but we always seemed to have one or two dogs. Mm-hmm. The, the, uh, the scale seemed to tip towards dogs. Well, I, I never had a cat growing up because my mother said they were sneaky. <laughs> and we couldn't have one. And, but I finally did get one as a child. I said I never had one. And it ate the neighbor's bird, so I had to get rid of it. Oh, so, um, wow. <laughs> what did Batman mean by sneaky? She just said they, they just, they're not very friendly. They're not like a dog. They're not real loyal. So kind of a, a fairly negative connotation. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with Mema, actually. I, yeah. There are some cats I've met that are kind of like dogs, but on average, they're less, uh, they're less friend, friendly and loyal. Well, they're just different. They're very independent, but I have a, I have a, 
huge respect for cats. They can really take care of themselves. They have personalities. Sometimes True. those personalities are good, and sometimes they're not. But um, they definitely have personalities. They do. And sometimes they're really good personalities. Yep. Yeah. It's almost a uh, luck of the draw kind of thing. I've got some great dog stories, but I won't tell you those. Tell, tell us one. Well, uh, do you remember you were playing basketball at Woodbury Forest? And I had parked my car at the park and ride in Rockville. And I went with another mother up to Woodbury Forest for the ball game. And then I talked to your bus driver from St. Christopher's and said, could you let Paul off at the park and ride in Rockville so I don't have to come into Richmond? And so he did. Well, while I, when I parked my car in the afternoon, this little black dog came up to me, and it was just matted and really smelled kind of bad. I couldn't even tell what kind of dog it was, except it was, except it was small. And so I, I left and got in the car with the other mother and went to Orange. Yeah, because you couldn't bring a stray dog to a high school basketball No, game. I couldn't do that. Yeah. So anyway, I thought about him all through the game and mm. coming back, and I said, if he's there, I'm going to take him, because he obviously was looking for somebody to rescue him. Yeah. So I did, and it was a starless night. It was so dark. You know, no moon, anything. It was really dark, and this is a little black dog. Mm. So anyway, he was easy for me to get. He didn't run away or anything, and I think I had something in the car I could feed him. So I put, and it was in a station wagon, and I put him all the way in the back. And then they, the bus arrives with Paul. Paul gets in the car, and he says, What is that smell? And I turned the interior light on, and I said, Well, look in the back. Well, it's a little black dog. You can't see him, and it's pitch black. Back there. Uh, and you said, I, I don't see anything. Paul said, I don't see anything. And I said, well, keep looking. I can see the eyes. And that was the only thing, you know, the light was hitting his eyes. And you said, what is that? So that was a little dog that I gave to the former mayor of town who had just lost his dog. But it, we took that little dog home and gave yeah. him a bath, and he was a Scotty. He was a little black Scotty. He was mm. darling. I, I vaguely remember that story. Uh, the former mayor was Dick Gillis. No, the former mayor was Hunter Jones. Oh. Over on Duncan Street. I got you. Right on. And that little dog loved Hunter and followed him around and went to church with him. Hunter was, um, his house backed up to the Christian church on Ash Street, and he just walked across his backyard, and that little dog would go with him. But he also jogged the little dog, not on a leash, just followed Hunter's. Oh, wow. But he kept coming back to our house for several weeks. And I would go to the door, and there he was. And Hunter's wife came the last time. She said, I'm not coming back again. If he comes over here again, he's yours. Oh. I'm tired of picking him no. up. So I took him. Oh, and I, we, had, we had named him Fred. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I picked up Fred, and I said, Fred. Do not come back to this house again. You belong to the Joneses. And put him in the car with Mrs. Jones, and off they went, and he didn't come back. So do you think he understands English, or uh, oh, he was just picking up on the vibe you were laying down? Probably the tone of my voice. Yeah, got didn't it. come back. You were very serious with mm-hmm. Fred. So he didn't come back. Hmm. So that's not what the Jones Joneses called him. They called him they, something else. They called him Fred. Oh, okay. They called him Fred Jones. Yeah, your names, your names <laughs> tend to uh, stick with people. My first dog uh, with my wife, uh, you named. Because we found your dog. Yes, you did. 
Yeah. We, we were responsible. That dog came from the dump, from the landfill. And his name was Landfill. Landfill Gilman. Right. L-Phil. F-I-L-L. That's how Landfill would sign his name. That's right. L-Phil Gilman. With a big car print. But commonly we refer to him just as Phil. Just as Phil. F-I-L-L. I like that. Yeah, you did find him. Tell the quick story of finding Phil. We went over to see a big eagle's nest that a friend of ours, Dr. Carter, who's now deceased, um, the elder Dr. Carter. The elder Dr. His, his son is a yeah. local physician, retired mm. now. Um, but he wanted us to see this big eagle's nest he had over there. So we took our two little dogs and went over there to his farm and tried to find the eagle's nest. Well, it's right near the landfill. Landfill. And it looked like the Grand Canyon, the landfill did. We mm-hmm. were way up on this ridge on his farm property. And we looked down, and it just seemed like a cavern and in the far distance the the public tends not to see that part of the oh you don't see that part because it's on private property but we um in the distance saw this pack of dogs far away and they you know they were minuscule but we could see them coming yeah and then we so we walked over closer to the edge and here was this little dog by a tree he looked like a sharpe there was no nose and his his face was huge with a little body, he had lacerations on his on his shoulder and mm. on his face, and he had a broken jaw too. And a broken jaw, and couldn't see his eyes. Had you get? Had you been in a fight? We think those dogs. We think he was left mm. abandoned in the landfill, and those dogs had attacked him. Anyway, so we picked him up. This was on a Sunday. We picked him up. Brought him home. We had dogs, so we, you know, were feeding him, gave him dog food. He couldn't find the dog food. He couldn't smell. His eyes were, I said, Larry, this is really a, a sick, sick puppy. We couldn't see his eyes. I mean, they were just little slits. So anyway, um, we, we took an eyedropper and forced some water in his mouth because I know he was dehydrated. Anyway, Larry was working over at the courthouse the next day, and our vet was on the way, so he dropped Phil off. And I told him, I said, he might say that Phil needs to be put down because he's, he's really sick. So Larry left him and not feeling very hopeful, but went back after work, brought him home, and he was already better. His, you began to see his eyes. His face was so swollen and infected from the bites mm. that he had. So in three days, he had a snout, and he was the cutest little puppy. He was a darling little puppy. And, and, and his little tail was curled under, you know, when we got him. And in three days, it was up and curled over his back, and he was darling. He kind of looked like the real-life version of Scrappy-Doo. I'm not trying to be funny. Well, he kind of did. Yeah, he was a cute dog. But his jaw had been broken, and it had already started setting on its own. Mm. So they did not want to re-break it. So we just let it mend back unaligned. But he was fine. He, yeah. he had no problem eating. Yeah, so anyway, uh, I'd been gone. I was doing some Army stuff for a few weeks, dating my now wife. And we come over. And I had no idea this little puppy was in your house, I don't think. Or you may have mentioned it No, I don't think call. you knew he was there. Because sh- I'd already found him another home. <laughs> oh, nice. 
we show up, and Lisa says after gushing over the puppy for because she he looked like perfect, a, like, a, looked like, perfect. A, like a like an awesome puppy. She Lisa immediately falls in love, and uh, she said, "Can we keep it?" And I said, "You and I are not married. What is this we stuff? Like I'm not." And what she really meant was, "Can you keep the dog, and then I come visit it when I feel like it?" And so we, I took the dog. Yeah. But I had arranged for someone who needed a dog, who just lost their dog, to come and see Phil the next day. Mm. And I had to call them and say, I'm sorry, he's been adopted. My son's girlfriend. (laughs) Phil is now my grand dog. (laughs) Yeah. We were were very lucky to have Phil. You have a uh, kind of like a lost sheep. You have a a big heart for these, you know, poor animals that, that you find or that follow you home. Absolutely, they need us, you know, and they're so loyal. And and every dog that I rescued, and I got some good other stories, but I won't tell you those. Every dog I ever rescued was so grateful, just so grateful. That's why Fred came back. I'm sure of it because he wasn't at that house that long. We mm. probably had him a couple weeks. But he associated you with getting him out of the situation that he had been in before. I think they all just seemed really. Really um, grateful. Yeah, to be rescued. Were, were any of them like? Because so you remind me a lot of my mom in that she also had this sort of thing where she would uh, adopt animals, and definitely in the numbers of the tens or twenties of of animals like came home with her or with us, and then she took them in. And more than once, we have a dog uh, who was just kind of just problematic behaviorally, because you can't expect a dog to live on the street and get. Um, attacked and abused for long without becoming kind of damaged in that in that sense. So, had, had any have you have your animals like ha- had that happen to them, or have they all been sort of this grateful? No, I think um, I mean Phil was grateful, but Phil had a little problem. He bit people. Mm-hmm. Now, <laughs> that, think, now, now that Phil's gone, we can talk about that. Yeah, yeah, he um, bit the father of a, of a friend of Paul's. I, I don't know that story. Well, it's not. Bob everybody, everybody heard you say Bob Hopkins once. <laughs> he bit Bob Hopkins. Um, he bit Zach. He bit as a baby. If anybody got near his food, he would. When we say bite, let's be clear. He would do the motion of biting, but he would not like grab on and then try to rip skin. He, he would. Oh, he didn't. It wasn't a vicious attack. Mm. But he was defending his food. It was. Right. A, it was an attention getter, is what he was doing. Well, I, I think you know he. Food was very important to him because he was pretty hungry, I think, when we found him, but he didn't know how to eat because he had a broken jaw and couldn't see the food and couldn't smell because he was so swollen. And he probably had other dogs take food away from him. And he's like, never again once he got to adult size. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so that. His mom, yeah. Daniel's mom, uh, rescued Great Danes in Kuwait. Oh. One of them was a Great Dane, yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. it's, it's pretty unusual. But yeah, people in Kuwait are, there's like a unique level of cruelty to animals in Kuwait or in the Middle East. Uh, so I, that, that might account for why the dogs that we got were sometimes more messed up, but it was always a mix. It was always like the Great Dane, for example, was uh, just the nicest dog, but was perpetually scared of his own shadow and every other animal that we had, even the cats. We'd ha- we had to keep him in a completely separate room until we could find a home for him because, yeah, he just... I, I don't know what it was. He was afraid of his own shadow. Yeah, all from early 
experiences. Yeah, well, pre-K. Bam. Pre-K, there you go. Boom, full circle. Well, yeah. I, I do want to make it clear that I only took dogs that, and we tried to find someone who owned Phil, but but then we figured out they had just brought him to the dump, yeah. dumped him. Yep. But we, we went um, to the houses that were close to the farm where we were looking for the eagle's nest to see if anybody was missing a dog, and... They said, nah. So we, we figured what it, what had happened. And you, they, may, you may have talked to somebody who actually had Phil and took him to the dump. I, I don't know. We'll never know. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, people would sometimes call me and say, I know a little dog that needs to be rescued. Sometimes they'd follow me home. But I would try to find out who they belonged to. You do to. your due diligence. Yeah. Because, you know, if they were pets. And I think most of them were. I had no doubt in my mind that Fred was someone's pet because he was the nicest little dog. But it was a park and ride. I think a family stopped, and he got out of the car and didn't come back. Oh, it's got to be brutal for the family that lost Fred. If that story's true, yeah. Well, I mean, I don't know what else happened because he was a nice little dog. That's a good theory. Yeah. Yeah. All right, mom. Let's talk about uh, your education or your continuing education. So you did the home economics thing, and then you were a teacher for quite some. You did you teach right away after college? Um, Larry was. In Germany, and I wasn't going to teach that year. Oh, no. The first job I got, they asked me if I would take that job because they knew I'd been the recipient of a state teacher scholarship. So um, that was the first year I taught, which was September after we graduated from college, got married, and Larry takes off from Germany. And so they called me and said, can you come <laughs> and teach sixth and seventh grade math and science to and history to um, students in Rockville? And I said, I can't because I'm going to be going to Germany. I had it instilled in me that you could not break a contract. So if, once you sign that contract, you fulfill that contract because you're leaving all those children without a teacher if you break your contract. That's the way everybody should be. So I said, no, I, I can't do it. So... Um, but thank you for thinking about me. So they called uh, back and said, if we don't make you sign a contract and you just teach as long as you can for us, and then if you have to go in the middle of the year, you know, or middle of the semester, you know, that we'll, we'll find somebody mm. to finish out. So I did it. I never signed the contract, but I taught all year. Huh. How about that? You, so, just, you, you may have been pulled out to Germany, so you didn't want to sign at the beginning. I didn't. I didn't want to sign that contract. Mm. Um, but anyway, I ended up teaching all year because they didn't make me sign a contract. What did you think of sixth and seventh grade? I've heard those are... My sister's actually teaching seventh grade right now. Uh, and I, she hasn't told me much, but what did you think? Well, um, what, and that was also in a rural area, a, a different rural area than the, my first teaching position. Mm-hmm. This is my second teaching position. I really liked those children because they were so uh, appreciative of anything you would do for them. But it was real obvious to me that some of them had some learning disabilities, and we weren't even talking about special ed and learning disabilities then in education. It was just really hard for them to learn. And I, I'd like to say that wasn't even a term, special education at the time. Um, this is late 60s, early 70s. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I didn't really, um, I didn't know how to meet their needs. Um, 
but I would try to, you know, give them extra help. But they just had a tough, they were, just a few of them had a really tough time learning. And I look back on that now and say, oh, you know, they would have been identified much earlier, mm. much earlier than sixth and seventh grade um, and, and been accommodated for right. whatever their needs were. Wow. And, and that's what uh, Lisa does. Yeah, she's a mm-hmm. teacher's aide, for sure. Mm-hmm. Lisa being my wife, uh, Mima's or my mom's daughter-in-law. Your only daughter-in-law, right? My favorite daughter-in-law. Yes. What do you think happened to those people that were that went undiagnosed uh, as they went into high school and left? You know, I think some of them, um, and I'm not talking about a huge amount, but you know, any child that's not helped in school is a child you lose. Um, they dropped out. They didn't graduate. And they had fewer options because they didn't graduate. And their needs weren't being met through the education system. And some uh, of them, I can think of a couple of them, were uh, from very, very poor families. And it was okay if they quit because that they didn't go to school because then they could work. Hmm. You know, their families didn't encourage them necessarily to to stay in school. So if you're struggling and you're not getting encouragement from home, we know what's going to happen. And Unless the kid is super exceptional. And they ways. didn't have a whole lot of enrichment at home. Mm. And they probably were happier working on the farm or working for a farmer than they were struggling in school. All right, so let's, let's transition to what it was like for you to get a part-time or, or go to school part-time to get a master's degree in counseling and then get a Ph.D. essentially in education. But it started pretty early after you began teaching. You started taking nighttime classes. Well, I had to because I was out of my field in the first job I had, which was teaching first grade. Teaching children how to read, and I never had a reading course. You, you never learned? You never learned how to read, or you never. I never <laughs> took a course in college to te- learning to how to read, read and teaching wait, people wait, to read wait, is wait, very. Wait, wait, wait. I couldn't read. Did you ask my mom if she was illiterate when she, <laughs> when she was, was teaching? I was trying. I like to repeat what the people say back to, <laughs> to try to understand. I never took a reading course, how to teach reading. Right. I never which, took an education course, and that is a different animal than learning that how to read. It, Absolutely, because there are so many different ways that children learn. Mm. So you you have to learn a lot. And reading is the, well, I don't know, I think writing is the hardest, not the act of physically writing, but being able to put your thoughts together to write. That's the, yeah. that's the hardest thing, yep. I think, for us to learn. Mm. I mean, many people argue and say, oh, no, math is much harder. But, you know, it's different. But reading is so essential to what you have to do, and reading certainly does influence your ability to spell, your ability to write. Um, reading's so very important. So, yeah, I always teach them how to read, and I had never had a reading course. So, reading is fundamental. Some would say <laughs> it's not in that regard. I understand. So, uh, talk to us about the experience of being a mom teaching during the day and then taking classes at night? Well, when I had children, it was um, it was so nice. That I, only, I taught in the neighborhood school. I taught just right down the street. So I could have walked to school if I didn't have so many things to take back and forth um, to school. And it, we could get there much quicker if I drove. So Paul and Buffy went with me to school. And they went to the same school. 
since it was a neighborhood school. And there were other teachers who were taking classes, so I could, um, you know, we, we could carpool and do that, and we'd go right after school. Paul and Buff would go play with children in the neighborhood and be accountable to my mother, who lived next door. They moved to, you know, my parents, when, when we moved to the house that we currently live in, we lived next door to that house. Mm. And so my parents decided they wanted to downsize and wanted a smaller house. We had outgrown our house. And so they bought that house, which was perfect. I loved having my parents next door so that my children had grandparents mm-hmm. right there. So I could, they just made it so much easier for me to be able to to go to the yeah. generation older than you, I I imagine a lot of families did what you're describing, yeah. but that was not very unusual. But that was fairly unusual to have your parents next door. Yeah, yeah. Did that? Is that part of? Uh, did, did you factor that into why you moved and stayed, or just stayed in Ashland uh, near Paul's family and near your grandkids? No, when we lived in Germany and we traveled a lot, um, it took Paul. Paul's been to Paris. He's been to Austria. He's I've been, been to some amazing places that I. He's don't been remember. to Italy. He's he's been to Holland. He's been to Liechtenstein and Switzerland. Your, your, your words mean nothing. To me. <laughs> wow. He's been he's well traveled. Quite the cosmopolitan. He is, uh, not like you, Daniel. But um, I I realized that we had such a jewel living in our small town. That's a college town that has so much to offer. We decided we wanted to come back and settle in Ashland. The center of the universe. The center of the universe. Right. And so um, we thought it was just a great place to, I mean, we wanted children, a great place to raise your children. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Where are your children? And it's not them living near grandkids intentionally. It's you have five grandkids and three of them happen to be near you because my wife and I decided to stay in the area. Yeah. So we're lucky in that regard. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so PhD, was it hard to get? Well, it was when, um, when I did it because what I was doing was with um, a, a dear person, Mary Kitterman, who lives in Ashland now, came back. As she was at the college, and... She and I wrote, Randolph-Macon did not have an elementary education course. And by being in counseling career planning, I can't tell you how many students, male and female, would say, why don't we have elementary ed? All we had was high school. Why don't we have elementary ed here? And I said, well, we just, we just don't have a, you know, we've never developed a program. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I saw the need, and I talked to Mary Kitterman, and she had asked me if I would teach as an adjunct in the education department while I was doing counseling and career planning. Mm-hmm. So um, anyway, we saw that there was an opportunity um, to develop an, an elementary ed program. At Randolph-Macon. At Randolph-Macon. So she and I wrote that program and submitted it to the state. And one, one of the things that changed that made it um, reasonable for us to do that, it was really a perfect time to do it, is because the State Department of Education said you could no longer major in elementary education. You had to have, it could be a minor, but you had to have a subject matter major. 
Okay. Before that, you if you went to a liberal arts school, and, and most teachers have liberal arts educations, you majored and took so many courses, you know, like that reading course I was talking mm-hmm. about. The one you didn't take, yeah. Uh-huh. The one, uh, that was part of the elementary ed curriculum. But that changed because the State Department said you have to have an academic major. So we said, this is a door opening for us because we have all these majors and we can do a minor mm-hmm. in, ele- in elementary ed. So that's what we did. And that program was used as a model for other four-year schools. The State Department used it as a model for them. Um, but we had done all of our you know, background work to make that to make that happen, because what the big schools, Longwood, Madison, and Radford, they were the big state teacher schools, they went to five-year programs. You had to have an extra year. Mm. You know, you could graduate, but then you went and took your um, education courses a fifth year. So it extended your college education by year. You had to pay a whole nother year of tuition. We, We designed a course that fitted into four years. And we got them into public schools their sophomore year. In a five-year program, they were going into schools after they had graduated from college. Oh, that sounds like a terrible idea. And it was it was a crash course, really, at the end of right. your graduation. I mean, your extra year. So that's how that happened. That's very cool. So, And that, I'm assuming, like, is that still in effect in some of these colleges? Oh, yeah, it is. Mm-hmm. It absolutely is. And so you ask about my... So, so after I helped write that program and attended many State Department meetings and defended our program, um, if I wanted to move to the faculty position, and there would be a faculty position for this elementary education director, there would be... Um, that position, mm-hmm. I had to have a, a terminal degree. Meaning more than a bachelor's that you were. Well, I had. had I had a master's at this point. Oh, more than a master's. That's not terminal. Terminal is a PhD or a, or a doctorate. What's the difference between those two? One's a doctor of philosophy, and you have to take um, more liberal education. Mm-hmm. Um, Doctorates sometimes are, are totally, and doctorates in education are almost totally uh, research and education courses. Okay, okay. More focused. Mm-hmm. So in order to, if I'm getting this right, in order to be able to assume that position at Randolph-Macon, you needed to... Well, I had to be hired for the position first. Okay. And But if I was going to even be considered, I had to be in a program so that they would know that I was serious about pursuing that degree. Right. So you did. Where'd you go? I went to VCU. I looked at George Mason, William & Mary, UVA. Terrible school. I didn't know you looked at UVA. That's cool. I did. It's an awful school. And the the one that really suited my... um, Because I'm I'm a full-time teacher, Mm -hmm. college professor at that point... um, that really suited me to go was VCU because they would customize your program to what you wanted to do. I wasn't just getting um, a PhD. Uh, uh, William & Mary's was very history-oriented. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. 
That sounds like William and Mary. Um, George Mason, I really liked their program, but man, that would have been tough you, commute. You, yeah, there's no online PhD. You had mm-hmm. to go everywhere in person. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That would have been a tough, tough commute, although I really liked their program. And um, UVA just didn't have it's the just appeal. Not a, not a great school, yeah. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it's hilarious. Yeah. Actually, actually, they were a little arrogant. I'm only kidding. Wait, no, so no, nobody's ever entirely kidding. Doesn't uh, Lindsay want to go to UVA? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh is all it, right. Lindsay's on a mic. Here we go. All right, so l- let's close out education with Lindsay asking a fun education question. What's your favorite part? Of, what was your favorite part about teaching? You know, Lindsay, good question. There we go. Good question. I will tell you the most favorite course I taught. Would that, would that work? Mm-hmm. That was when I, we had January term at Randolph-Macon, and they really uh, promoted study abroad. So I um, took groups of students to England, and we did comparative education. Ooh. And I loved doing that because we got to travel. I got to spend you know, concentrated time with my students. I was with them all the time. We lived in a... Um, we lived in Lord North's um, home, which was an abbey in a oh. little in a little thatched roof village called Roxton, and um, everybody was saying Fairleigh Dickinson in New Jersey owns that abbey now, but they invite other schools to come in and use that facility, and um, it was. It was a big joke that Lord North um, was the prime minister when we declared our independence from England. And they always said he's turning over in his grave that all these American students are living in his home. Yeah, you really enjoyed that. It was very much a uh, English countryside kind of experience. It was right? it was lovely. It was wonderful. I loved doing that. That was probably my most favorite. Most um, bestest experiences. Absolutely. Very cool. Lindsay, that was a fantastic question. Great work, Lindsay. Yeah, we we are going to uh, transition from uh, grandchild number four or my second child to your fifth and youngest grandchild. My last grandchild. And my uh, youngest child, Melissa Gilman. Lindsay, thanks for joining us. Hope you learned a few things. Mel, join us now. Mel Mel said uh, before... uh, we started recording. I told Melissa, it'd be great if you could ask a question or two. I don't have any questions. And I said, it'd be great if you could ask a question or two. And Mel said, can I also tell a joke? <laughs> so, Mel. We need a little levity in, here, right? We do. I've been pretty somber. Mel, you can tell, you can tell <laughs> the joke that you ran by me earlier today. Go ahead, baby. What's black and white and red all over? The newspaper. That's true, too, but that's not her punchline. Uh-oh. <laughs> Mel's cracking herself up. A nun falling down the stairs. Uh, oh, man. You See, can say that because this is a Catholic family. Yeah, we are Catholic. Most we're going to have anyway. to put, this yeah. is going to be an explicit episode now, thanks to you, Mel. <laughs> Talking about it was PG f- until then. Physical harm upon nuns. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right, cool. So, Mom, uh, we can come back to education if we want, but we did spend a fair amount of time there, but you also spent a fair amount of your life uh, educating others and being educated. But you are also, I I know a decent number of people that are creative, but I don't know anybody that has the breadth of creativity 
uh, and you'd mentioned uh, working with your hands a lot. And so I could rattle off a lot of things you've done creatively that I could never dream to do. Um, but instead of me rattling off that list, why don't we start with like the top five or ten uh, things you've done creatively that you, uh, you really enjoy and want to talk about? Mm. Well, I think almost every day that I'm, I'm going to paint some more. Um, but I, I certainly have enjoyed painting, the painting of my two grandsons, old, my two old, older grandchildren. Mm-hmm. Um, you painted a fair uh, number of uh, animals as oh, well. Yeah, yeah, I've painted some animals. And um, so I like painting, you know, brush on canvas. O- um, oil and acrylic? Uh, mostly acrylic. I really okay. enjoy acrylic because right. of the vibrant color, and it dries quickly. Huh. And I, that appeals to me. Sure. Because I have done oil painting, and I had someone who was cleaning my house, and I had a painting, and she dusted it. Oh. Ooh. That's brutal. It was. It's probably your finest uh, I'd spent, piece. Too. I'd spent a long time on it. But anyway, she didn't mean to do it. But I guess that's probably why I really like acrylics. <laughs> That, that experience haunts you to this day, probably. <laughs> I'll never forget it. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. Stained glass, oilcloths, um, you know, rugs. Sure. Mm-hmm. Everybody knows rugs. What do you what, mean? Oh, oilcloth oil rugs, you know, oh, God, pa- God, painting God, God. canvas and making them a floor cloth, actually. Yep. It's a floor cloth. Yeah. Um, you made some for me. I have. Yep. Um, I don't know. You did you did copper cabinetry in, yeah. in your in your kitchen. You still have that, right? Yeah, pierced copper. Pierced copper uh-huh. in, in certain designs. I I, I made one or two of those myself. It was one of yes, you did. my and, projects. And I think my sister had had to do one. And as well. they are all signed. So. Yeah, that's right. Uh, you learned how to reupholster furniture, and you mm, did, a, did a fair amount of that. Mm-hmm. And I realized that what upholsterers charge. It's well worth every penny. Because it it's hard work. hard work. Mm. Yeah. And you've got to be precise, really precise. You did calligraphy. Calligraphy. You still write in calligraphy, right? Mm-hmm. In fact, every note or letter you've sent to my kids, you've used calligraphy almost exclusively, I think. And it's, it's gorgeous. And you can read it, but barely. <laughs> <laughs> you have to know what you're doing. And you, sp- uh, you used to do wreaths uh, when I was a kid. You would make them out of vines. You, I think almost entirely out of vines, and but you would have different designs uh, along the wreath. Let's see. Um, am I remembering more of your artwork? You do flowers for weddings. I think you're still doing that occasionally. Well, I really do enjoy gardening and um, flower design. I've done that a lot. Yeah. Well, you That's still do a... weddings, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I've also judged flower shows for the Garden Club of Virginia. Um because you have to get credentials to do that, and I've, I've done that, and I enjoyed that. I've learned a lot from looking at other people's work. So out of all those things, and I think we're probably forgetting a few others, which do you enjoy the most? Pre- presently and over the life of your creative time on Earth. Probably flower arranging and painting. Mm. Yeah, because you've really stuck with uh, flower arranging for a really long time. You've been painting for a long time, too. Yeah, I did. Um, well, I just painted some angel wings. Yes, you did. You're also a uh, sort of this uh, painting editor of things as well, because we have Lisa and I have this little painting of uh, it looks like an Italian uh, 
doorway and, and what you would typically find around an Italian doorway in Rome. And you painted uh, Libby into the painting. And we, and we keep it in our bathroom. We love that painting. I just edited it yeah. by inserting. She you added, enhanced it. She added a labradoodle to it. Yeah, it was awesome. Yeah. Cool. So you mentioned Garden Club. You've been a member of the Hanover Gardens Club. Ashland Garden. Oh, excuse me. I, I, I apologize. The Ashland Garden Big Club is very, very different. I, as her only son, I should have known that it was the Ashland Garden <laughs> Club, not the Hanover Garden Club. Can't believe you. Yeah, it's awful. Uh, are you also a member of the Virginia Garden Club, or is that not a thing? You are a member of the Garden Club of Virginia by being a member of the Ashland Garden Club. Gotcha. All right, so let's talk about that. I know you've spent a lot of time doing... Garden club activities and leading things. You had you wrote a paper, I think. That you put a lot of effort into the garden club. Well, I have. I love the garden club. I love doing that kind of thing. But um, I think maybe what you're talking about is the Ashland Woman's Club, uh, which is a liter- literary woman's club that began in 1896, I think. Wow. And we made it. On Tuesday afternoons at 4 o'clock, and it's purely to hear someone's paper that they've worked on for a year that they've written about a subject that they want to know more about. So all they all res- nonfiction? Or can it be fiction as well? Well, it can be. It, it could be on a great author. It can be on... Um, it can be. Oh, I know um, one person did it on Hamilton's production. Uh, the Hamilton production. Mm. By, you know, Lynn Manuel, Lynn, yeah. um, Miranda. Miranda. Um, sometimes it's a it's on music. Sometimes it's on literature. Sometimes it's... Oh, we've had one on um, car racing. Hmm. What was yours on? Oh, I've, I've done one for every year forever. Well, oh, you've done one a year? I've done one a year. Unless, unless you're an officer, unless you're president or... Oh, wow. Another officer. You do one a year. And how many pages are we talking about? You speak for 45 minutes. And that equates to how many eight and a half by 11 pages would you Mm, say? 25. It's a serious commitment. Yeah. It is. It's a lot of work. And you do, you research it. And sometimes they have a lot of audiovisual, audiovisuals, which make it very nice. What was your favorite one that you... I, I really liked the first one I did, which was on Hanover Town, which was the first little settlement in Hanover County that was called Hanover. And when they were moving, they, and I, have, I had some slides that I used for that, and you went and you swung off a, a rope uh, over the Pamunkey River. Is there another song you have that I'm not familiar with? Cause I don't no, remember doing but, that. well, you were a child. You were a child when you, I've been in that club since, I think, 1980. And you were doing that every year? You're uh-huh. st- are you still doing it? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, the interesting thing about Hanover Town, there were some ruins there, only ruins. And um, when they were moving the capital from Williamsburg, they took a vote whether it would go to Hanover Town or to Richmond. What year was that-ish? Oh, I don't know when. Uh, Late 1700s, maybe? No, earlier than that, I believe. Yeah, okay. Um, Hanover Town missed it by two votes. Mm, so that's the, crazy. The capital of Virginia could have been, if they'd been three votes more. About not Town. very far from where we are right now. No, it, it's east of here. Yeah. Wow. But not very far east. 
Well, it's not real close here, but any, okay, anyway. Right. So that that was the first paper I did, and I loved that. I loved doing that. I've done Frank Lloyd Wright. I've done the Chelsea Flower Show. I've done, I can't even remember all of them all these years. They're just a lot wow. that, I've, that I've loved doing. With the flower arranging, I'm, I've, I've read about uh, that it's a meditative practice that is done as like a form of Zen in Japan, as like a, a form of Zen Buddhism. Uh, have you ever th- heard of that? I mean, it, it sounds like it's super serious, you know, on, on par with like archery as a form of Zen, but it's just a different vehicle that people use. Uh, and when I think flower arranging, I, I think, I don't think there's a lot to it, you know, uh, uh, like at face value, but apparently there is. There's so many different kinds of flower arrangements. Um, there's a whole club of uh, Japanese flower arrangers in Richmond who are not really? Japanese people, they're interested in learning how to to do that kind of mm. arrangement, which is very simple, um, but very dramatic and very, um, with a lot of movement. And your style is, has been, like, different, like, for weddings and... It depends on what uh, the people who were um, paying us to do it wanted, you know, right. the kind of... Uh, arrangements that she's, they wanted. She's very, very good at it. And I'm, I don't want to brag about my mom, but she's really, she's done it for a long time. She's extremely creative. And when she commits to doing something, she's she's all in. And Daniel's asking, uh, the the Zen Buddhist, Buddhist or whatever you said, <laughs> is, is just a cover for the fact that he's probably going to be married in a couple of years and he needs somebody to give him flowers. <laughs> it's fine. Eugenia won't listen to this. <laughs> no, they, there are many different styles of flower arranging. Mm. Flower arranging. That was a misread, Paul, but it's fine. <laughs> sure, whatever you need to tell Eugenia. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So real quickly, uh, I had to write a thesis in college, uh, 33 pages. I, it was the hardest thing at the time I'd ever done in my life. I'm like, why would anybody want to... Sp- write 33 pages of anything. Mm. I'm just learning tonight that my mom was dropping 25 pages a year since 1980. Yeah. See, that seems crazy. Man. Your, your 33 pages were probably like triple spaced. and Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, was, uh, I was getting as, uh, I, yeah, I was being a minimalist, if that's where we're going. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But you actually get enjoyment out of sitting down with the topic and writing, writing, writing about it. Because it's a topic that you choose, and so I always choose something that I'm interested in in doing. There are no topics that I want to write 25 pages on. Oh, there are lots of things that you want to learn more about. Oh, mm. Mm. but you can learn you can learn without writing about them. You can, but you learn a lot more when you go in depth. And that's, probably, and that's yeah, very true. It stays with you. Yeah. Probably oh, yeah. longer as well. And I learn so much because every Tuesday afternoon I'm learning. Something different. All I have to do is go in. It's not social. You go in and you sit down and you listen to the paper and you wow. get up and you leave. That's awesome. There's no socializing? No nothing? Wow. Right, it's so t- really, really t- not a social aspect. Okay. We, have, we have three T's a year where we can socialize. T meaning T-E-A. T-E-A. Not some weird just letter T that stands for something else. Got it. So talk to us about the Garden Club because I know you've spent a lot of time uh, – well, over a long period of time and a lot of time each month uh, on the Garden Club of Virginia and and the Ashland Garden Club. Well, I don't, I don't know really what else um, to tell you. How do you put a lot of work into a garden club? Is it for food or for flowers or for... Well, we, gosh, we do. Um, part of Garden Club is not just 
arranging flowers and growing flowers. But mm-hmm. it's you look at conservation, you look at... Um, well, one of the big things, the reason I was interested in being a member of the Ashland Garden Club is they do Historic Garden Week. And I love history, and I love looking at historic places and gardens. And that is the largest open house in the United States, and we've been doing it since 1926. How do, how do you mean largest? You know, you... you uh, tour homes and your tour gardens. So it's really a, where you're invited to come in, where you pay for your ticket. And we use, we've given millions of dollars to Virginia for restoration of, of historic properties. Mm. And it's, it's really worthwhile, and it's a, it's a very powerful group. They make a lot of things happen. What was the name again? Garden Club of Virginia. Oh, sorry. Look, um, look, look it up the, on, on the internet, and you'll find a lot of the it. historical. Okay. Oh, oh, it's called Historic Garden Week. Historic Garden Week. People okay. come all from all over the United States, and some come from many places in the mm. world. Does Lewis Ginter Botanical Garden? Can't even say it. Lewis Ginter Botanical Gardens fit into that? Actually, it's not part of the Garden Club of Virginia, but we have a very nice relationship. Mm. The Garden Club of Virginia has a very nice relationship with them. We've mm. done some of our flower shows there. Oh, cool. I've not been yet. Uh, well, you'll have to go. Broaden your horizons. I, I really should. <laughs> my, my narrow, narrow horizons, yeah. All right, Mom, let's talk about your love of Ashland and why you've really never left besides some time in Germany and some time in college, right? Yeah. Yeah, you've been here basically your entire life. Which I think we established you're 48, but it's still a really long time. Yeah. Right. That's good. Um, Ashland's just a great place, and it's very unusual, um, I think, in that it is very close-knit, although I read letters to the editor in the newspaper every day, and there are people in from Ashland, and I don't have any idea who they are. And you used to feel like you knew everybody. I felt like I knew, when yeah. I was teaching... In Ashland, I felt like I knew everybody, mm. um, and just because I've lived there. But you know, Ashland's grown like like everything else. But we do some. Uh, we're unique because we have a train right through the middle of town. We capitalize on the train rather than we have big train day. Um, we have the Iron Horse Restaurant. Well, you live two blocks off the railroad. You have for quite and, some time. Yeah. And I hear um, when I'm talking with people on the phone. This was before Central Air. They'd say. Oh, train's going through town. And I'd say, oh, yeah, I guess it is. You never hear the train. You just don't hear the train. You just get so used to it. You get desensitized uh, to the sound of the train coming through town. Yeah, it's not a problem sleeping. That's why mm-hmm. people live along the tracks. It takes them a week or two, and they're fine. And we do the Ashland Musical Variety Show, which was started years ago. Paul has been in it numerous oh, times. Really? Ruffy's been in it. You've tried to get me to be in it more than just a, a few times I did do it, and uh, yeah, I refused to be in it. What uh, what did Paul do? Go ahead, Paul. Tell him what you did. I don't remember any of it except the one thing, and you should tell that story since you made me do it. The extremes? Yeah, that's right. Go ahead, tell the extreme story. Well, three friends and I were an act in the National Variety Show for a number of years. We've kind of retired from that. I mean, we still participate in the variety show but we were all in one big purple dress and we were doing stop in the name of love by the supremes and you know you're you're lined up right next to each other and you look like you're in four separate dresses they're pulling the the waistband it's in a, it's a stretchy 
and you turn sideways and it looks like it's four different dresses. Yeah, it's, uh, they're doing. And we and we wear great big blonde wigs, and it's a heliotrope dress, and we have long heliotrope gloves with sequins coming up the, and we wear big earrings, and we wear false eyelashes, and when it gets to stop in the name of love, we jump. And the dress is just one big dress. And the crowd just goes crazy. <laughs> and they may have seen it 15 times. And they'll just... They, they just can't they, wait for you guys to... They just love it. Because the shortest one, Bonnie, and, and I guess you were, the, a, you were the I tallest. I was the tallest. And you would jump out to the right a little bit. She would jump out to the left to expand the singular dress thing that went on. And the place just so goes crazy. Big, one big stretchy dress. Wow. And we're not trying to embellish this too much, but I mean, it's four or five hundred people in the in the place, and they're all uh, enjoying the at that moment. Yeah. Oh, Daniel, we have video. We'll show you. And so we each have four sons. In fact, the four of us. Well, no, each, you don't each have four sons. You I mean, each we have each, one son. We each have a son. We have four sons together. I meant to right, We each have a son. Yeah. And so that's really what brought the four of us together was our sons. They're all the same age. So. We had this brilliant idea that they should do it. And I couldn't, uh, what's the term when you try to get, get away from your parents legally? Uh, oh, oh, uh, emancipate yourself. Yeah, I couldn't emancipate myself at this point. <laughs> oh, Paul, you loved it. Stop it. <laughs> so they wore the dress, and they wore pie-top tennis shoes, and they wore the wigs, and they I can't remember if you wore and false so if eyelashes. And so if you knew any of us, you knew that we were the sons, and uh, if you didn't know, you're like, what are we looking at? These look like teenage boys that are dressed up as women. Why, why am I looking at teenage boys <laughs> dressed up as women? I'm amazed that you were able to convince them to do that. They did it. You, there's and, a plenty of other things she made me do that. And, and, and they... And they loved it, and it was really they funny loved it. because you know we did all sorts of moves, and they had the horrible hairy armpits, and some people because yeah, yeah, we were we were putting our hand above our you, heads. You were yeah. doing that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so people told us afterwards that you know I didn't realize it was the boys until they did that because they all looked like their mothers, you know. Yeah, except I was six. Whatever I was at the time. You, yeah. were, you were tall. And he said, and fill the hairy armpits. <laughs> and we all had hairy armpits. So, yeah, we had to be 15, 16 probably at that point. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I really did enjoy it. Oh, I, did, I, did, I didn't enjoy it. I know putting, you did. I didn't enjoy putting them. You, I, like, they put makeup on. It was a ridiculous amount of makeup on. Uh, but yeah, jumping out at the uh, stop in the name of love when it, that song really crescendos and yeah. that's where it pops. Jumping out, it's it's kind of hard not well, to let people love, going crazy. You, yeah, love, you yeah. love the audience reaction, yeah. and you all had to learn the routine. We made them rehearse and practice. It was the last time I danced. Actually, it was 30, 30 some years ago. Wow, yeah. good times. So yeah. I think I think Mel may have a question here. I just want to know if it's on video so we can see it. Yes. Can I see it? We have, we have both video of your grandmother doing it and your father doing it. I just want to see you doing it. Yeah, well. You have it. I have right. no idea where that is. Well, you have to see the mothers do it. Okay, I'll see. So you see what it's supposed to look like. Okay. And then you see them do it. You say I have it. Is it on, on a DVD somewhere? <sighs> or, or VHS? You know, I don't know. I have it, I think. I'll, I'll look. I'll find it for you, Mel. Okay, thank you. Yeah, it's a good look. All right, anything else besides uh, small town and railroad tracks that has kept you at Ashland? 
And the, I'm sorry, and the Garden Club. And the Women's Club. And um, I, I think that I really am very fulfilled having been a teacher because uh, when I look back on my life, I, I just think that's such purposeful work. And I always would tell my students that I read this somewhere and I thought it just makes such a difference because teachers have so much influence on children that um, to the world you may just be one person, but as a teacher of a child, you are that world. Mm. And um, I, when I was teaching at Randolph-Macon and preparing teachers to be teachers, I am convinced that I taught the best students in the world because they were really caring. They, and I, we've produced some great teachers from Randolph-Macon. They really are caring. They really want to make a difference, and they are dedicated to teaching. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Randolph-Macon is a huge part of the Ashland environment and culture, for yeah, sure. For sure. I think we just kind of have a nice blend of so many things in Ashland. And it seems like there's real investment in the community. I think that in more, like in Richmond City where I live, I don't feel personally invested in Richmond as a city. I don't read the, the news and read the letters to the editor. Um, <laughs> and just, that might be because I've only been here for a few years. But I think that, you know, if you live in a place and you're invested in it to the point that you're joining in the communities, reading the letters to the editor, it's... Uh, there's like a, a, a deep sense of, of belonging and community. Well, these are the Richmond, this is the Richmond newspaper that I'm reading the letters to. The, I just want to know what's going on in Richmond. Too. Oh, the so, Richmond Times Dispatch? Yeah, I'm reading them in the Dispatch. Oh, we, so don't, we don't have a local paper. Then we, we used to, but not we anymore. We don't anymore. Yeah. So then, uh, of course, you're not going to know you know everybody. No. She's talking but, about people but, being referenced but as they, Ashlanders. They sign their name, uh, and then you put your where, where, you're you, where you live. Yeah, and I'm thinking... These people oh, I see, who I write see. these great letters. Who are these people? Mm. Um, well, do you think young people read letters to the editor? No, probably not. Yeah, I don't think so. Um, but there, uh, there have been people because the train comes through town so many times. There are people who've actually moved to Ashland because they've come through Ashland on the train. We we light up the tracks in Ashland at Christmas, oh. and people. Yeah. And they're beautiful homes along tracks. And and they love to, it just has such a um, a great hometown feeling. Mm. So yeah, I have a lot invested in Ashland. I'm, I'm glad my children grew up in Ashland. I grew up in Ashland. I'm basically still in Ashland. Maybe, maybe because I have trouble uh, getting away from my parents or something. Yeah. Yeah. Something like that. Maybe I've tethered you. You may have, uh, or maybe yeah. No excuses. I'm not a victim. I've made your choice. I've made a lot your of choices. Choice. Absolutely. So, mom, uh, I've been told that I get my sarcasm from you, and we have not heard any sarcasm tonight. It's unusual. So, are you? Can you talk about sarcasm, or are you in denial <laughs> that you're sarcastic? No, I know that was a period of time that I was very sarcastic. <laughs> but then I, I realized that not everybody understands sarcasm. You know, sar- sarcasm, so it's I no, was it's, doing it to be funny. Know your but, audience is what you're saying. Yeah. Right. So, and you know, you often don't, so. So you play, well, the, the, you play it straight when you don't know your audience. The first yeah. thing you said to me, you were holding a scooper that was obviously for dog feces, and I said, oh, yeah, what's that? And you're like, it's to pick up, uh, you know, poop. And I was like, oh, like dog poop? And you're like, no, human poop. Straight face. <laughs> now, the reason she did that, Daniel, I, I don't, you tell me if I'm wrong here, Mom. She knew you, you were in her uh, presence because of me. 
And if, if she just, I think, associates smart ass with me. Right. So, she, yeah. 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 But it was great. <laughs> it was hilarious. I was like, wow. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> yeah, you're either going to love her or maybe not so much. Yeah. I was like, Woo. <laughs> Yeah, no more Mr. Nice Guy. Yeah. <laughs> Daniel, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to no, scar you. <laughs> it was hilarious. All right, Mom, tell us your, uh, we'll conclude with you telling us about your favorite story uh, growing up in Ashland or at any point in your time. uh, Oh, gosh. I don't, I didn't know. Mel can tell jokes while you're thinking about it, if you want. (laughs) (laughs) My favorite story about Ashland. By the way, that was hilarious. I didn't realize she she said that to you. It was, was on the, it was on the beach when we walked up. Yeah. <laughs> oh, he had just gotten there. Yeah, yep, I just gotten there. You'd yeah. known him about thirty seconds at that point. <laughs> yeah, I think we just said um, hi, and that's it. <laughs> you said, "Oh, it's time for me to go." I was like, "Oh." <laughs> no, it made a lot of things about Paul make sense. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I am my mother's son in a lot of ways. Um. I don't know. There's just a lot of... I, I don't have one particular one, but I, I, I guess I do love the fact that Dick Gillis, who coined Center of the Universe, was our neighbor. Right and next he, door. He was right he there. He was our next-door neighbor. Yeah. And he was just a, a colorful guy who was... He just loved Ashland. Yeah, I, just, I don't know. And he was from Brunswick County, from Lawrenceville. He went to Randolph-Macon and stayed... And he's, he was a World War II vet. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know I, I enjoyed being around him. I think people a lot older than him enjoyed being around him. I, he just seemed to be, uh, he seemed to entertain a lot of people, and he seemed to be liked by a what's, lot of people. What's the center of the universe thing? He was just basically saying that Ashland's the greatest the, place The greatest on Earth. place. Yeah. Okay. Greatest place. So we're clearly the center Beyond of the, the Earth. The center of the, the universe. universe. Right. There's a brewing company, or a brewery. Yeah, they stole it from Dick Gillis. Mm-hmm. Oh, they did. Yeah. yeah. Are they here? They're not yeah. far. They're just outside of town, technically, but they're a- close actually. Enough. They are the origins in Ashland Brewing. Uh, is this? Huh? Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're also that. Yeah, right. along the railroad tracks. Mm-hmm. Okay, it's the same guys, but the actual Kotu establishment is maybe two miles outside At of Atlee, town limits. Kind of Atlee. Yeah. Kotu. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's good times. That's a great story. I like that. I think we should call this this episode the center of the universe. Boom. Could be. Yeah. We absolutely should call it that. All right. You, you like that, Mom? Because you get to name it. Oh, I do? Yeah. I might have to think about it. All right. Okay. Good times. Mel, any last uh, minute questions or uh, jokes you want to share? Jokes? I need to think. All right. She's going to think. Maybe we're going to think off recording. Mom, thank you so much for joining us. My I, pleasure. I, I learned a few things. I the, the thing that's blowing my mind is 25 pages a year. Is it, am I just lazy? Probably. Yeah, I think you're right. <laughs> it really makes you um, do something that you wouldn't think you were going to. I mean, uh, we're off, right? No. No. It really makes you indulge yourself in something that you wanted to know more about, but never would take the time to... Do anything other than read something kind of perfunctory about it, right? Um, it and I, it has evolved into having to know a lot of technology too, because you know we know that people are not just auditory learners but visual learners. So many of us do, um, you know, PowerPoint kind of 
thing. Or? So, so your your forcing function was being a member member of the Ashland Women's Club, and so your continued participation meant you were. It's the Women's Club. Am I, what did I say? Women's. Uh, woman's singular. Singular. Wow. So possessive. Singular possessive. All right, the Women's Club. Uh, but that was the forcing function to get you to dive deeply once a year into a topic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. I think I would have joined, I'm not a woman, but if I could join, I would have done it maybe one time and been like, eh, I'm done. Well, it has limited membership. You have to be invited to join. And so it's kind of an honor to be invited Mm -hmm. to join. Um, Very few people don't join. Hmm. When asked. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you think there's like a lower tier man's club that Paul and I could join that's more like... (laughs) Four pages? <laughs> you say? No, 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 reading four pages. <laughs> I think you have to. For a year, yeah. I think you have to at least hit double digits. Maybe okay. We, maybe we could start a We could start our own. Yeah. Man's possessive. Man, man's possessive. Yes, yeah. not men's. Yeah, but Brenda, thank you for, for joining us today. It was well, thank a pleasure you. to listen to you. Thank you. It was lots of fun. I enjoyed doing this. Thank you for inviting me. If you enjoyed this episode, feel free to subscribe through whichever app you're using. To share your thoughts, head over to our website at podso1.io, and there you can comment on episodes or send us feedback directly. Thanks for listening.